And so, Father, we pray that you would hear our prayers, open our ears and our eyes to see your truth, and may that truth set us free, and may we be free indeed. Amen. Well, there was once an ancient slave who was credited with telling the most fascinating stories. One of the most famous stories that he ever told was about a little shepherd boy living at the edge of a village. Now, watching sheep in a sleepy town is not the most exciting job, so he came up with an idea to make life more interesting. He ran out to the town and he yelled, Wolf! Wolf! There's a wolf! And the villagers were quite alarmed. They, they dropped what they were doing and they ran for help and... Um, and they came out with sticks and clubs. I said, where's the wolf? Where's the wolf? But you see, there was no wolf. He was amused. They were furious. The boy was just having a bit of a, a fun, and it, and it worked. It worked so well that he tried it a second time. And, and it worked a second time. All the villagers ran out. But the trouble was is that the third time the boy yelled wolf, there really was a wolf. And you know how the story goes. The townspeople had become so incredibly cynical that they had a hard time imagining that a wolf could ever show up in their little sleepy village. And no one expected a wolf to show up ever again. You know, I, I hear that story and, and I think about my relationship to Holy Spirit. To be honest, there is no shortage of people in the world crying Holy Spirit. They've witnessed miracles, performed signs and wonders, then they hear the voice of God. Uh, people claim that God directly authorizes all kinds of actions, uh, banal actions. God told me to wear these socks, uh, these mismatched socks this morning. Holy Spirit, absurd actions. God miraculously turned all my feelings to gold. Holy Spirit. Uh, even sinful actions. God told me that I married the wrong person and that I should leave my spouse for my coworker or my tennis coach. Holy Spirit. I don't know what that does to you, but I have to admit that when people cry Holy Spirit today, I'm tempted to become cynical and jaded. As cynical and as jaded as the villagers in that story. And my guess is that many of you can relate to me. But what tends to happen to us when we get cynical and we get jaded is that Holy Spirit becomes the Holy Spirit. This auto-programmed mechanism of salvation. It's doing something important somewhere in the background, kind of like my dishwasher at night. But it's certainly not someone with whom I have to relate on a daily basis. My cynicism about Holy Spirit has always bothered me, especially, especially when I read the New Testament. We've been in a series on Holy Spirit, and and what we've seen from the beginning is that God desires to be personally and powerfully involved in our lives through Holy Spirit. And so, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul urges believers, do not quench the Spirit. 
To quench something is to, to stifle it, to suppress it, to put it out. Apparently, Paul believes that, that within the sovereignty of God, uh, he has ordained that we can suppress uh, the Holy Spirit's personal and powerful work in our lives. And because Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God, uh, when we suppress Holy Spirit's work, this grieves Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve Holy Spirit. Uh, Do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So, rather than suppress Holy Spirit, rather than grieve Holy Spirit, Paul urges us, to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. To keep in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5.25. All these commands call us to have a personal and a dynamic relationship with Holy Spirit. And so my question for you today is, is your relationship to Holy Spirit personal and dynamic? Does it look like what we see in the book of Acts? The book of Acts is really about the acts of Holy Spirit. After Holy Spirit dramatically falls on the apostles, he continues the mission of Jesus by dramatically and personally engaging believers in the mission. So, for example, in Acts 8.30, we read how Holy Spirit tells Philip to join the Ethiopian eunuch's chariot. Now, Philip does not know how Holy Spirit is preparing this man for the gospel, how at that very moment, that very moment, the Ethiopian was reading a prophecy about Jesus. Philip only knows that he should go. And we don't know. We don't know how Holy Spirit told Philip to go. That doesn't seem to be important. What is important, though, is that the Spirit did this. In Acts 13, the church is worshiping and fasting in Antioch, and and Holy Spirit instructs them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for this missionary journey. And so they did. They laid hands on Paul and Barnabas, and then they sent them off. Verse 3. But verse 4 of that chapter says that they were sent off by Holy Spirit. So verse 3, the church sends them off. Verse 4, Holy Spirit sends them off. So which is it? Yes. Yes. It was Holy Spirit accomplishing His purpose in and through the church. Two chapters later in Acts 15, we see something very similar. A council of church leaders gathers to talk about how to handle some developments in the churches around Asia Minor. What are we to do with these Gentiles, and what obligations are they to perform? Must they keep Jewish law and a Jewish way of life? And they reach some conclusions, and when they do so, they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things to the Holy Spirit and to us. Evidently, the early church expected and believed that Holy Spirit was at work in and through their deliberations, even at business meetings. What about us? Is that how you view a congregational meeting, a ministry team meeting? 
In the next chapter, Acts 16, Holy Spirit acts in various ways to guide Paul and Silas as they take the gospel around the world. And, and first, Holy Spirit does something that is quite unexpected. He forbids Paul and Silas from speaking the word of God in Asia, which would have been to the southwest region. And, and then the Spirit does not allow them to go into uh, Bithynia, which is in the northeast region. Now, how did the Spirit forbid them? We're not sure. The text doesn't say. It doesn't seem to be important. What is important, however, is that they expected, they expected Holy Spirit to be dynamically at work, moving their movements and directing them as they traveled throughout the world to take the gospel to the nations. And he was, he was at work. Now, clearly, if you look at these examples from the book of Acts, you can see that there is some mystery in how the Holy Spirit works and how the Holy Spirit is communicating things to the church. In most cases, we are not told exactly how the uh, Holy Spirit interacts with these believers. In Acts 19, for instance, Paul says that he resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Or in Romans 9, Paul says that his conscience bears witness in Holy Spirit that, that he is genuinely sorrowful for his fellow countrymen. What does it it mean that Paul resolved in the Spirit. How did his conscience bear witness in the Spirit? We're, we're not exactly sure. But what is clear is that Holy Spirit is interacting with these believers in a very personal and powerful way. And they expected Holy Spirit to be doing just that. What about us? Do we expect that Holy Spirit will interact with us in personal and powerful ways? Or have we grown cynical, jaded, as cynical as, as, cynical as those villagers hearing a boy cry wolf one more time? You know, when many of us think about great manifestations of the power of God on earth, I think we think about what's happened in the past, right? Uh, but if it really is, if it really is to our continuing advantage that Jesus send Holy Spirit to us, if it's better for him to go away and to ascend on high and to send Holy Spirit to us, if that is better for us, if that's for our advantage, then why would we relegate God's powerful and personal presence to the past? I mean, to be clear, I want to be clear, there are some aspects about that time, the time of the New Testament, that are absolutely unique. The apostolic witness was absolutely unique, and their authority to produce canonical writings and to approve canonical writings and the putting together of the Bible, that's absolutely unique. There is no more revelation in any way like that, any way, shape, or form. And there are unrepeatable events from that period, the unrepeatable events, the events that won our salvation, Jesus' death, his, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension on high, and his subsequent outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, these things do not duplicate themselves. Uh, they are once for all events in history that have continuing ramifications, yes, 
but they are not repeatable events. That being said, it does seem that the Bible discourages a mentality that venerates the past as, as there's some golden era way back when where God was at work and will never be at work like that again. I mean, when, when the Israelites become enamored with how God met Jacob, for instance, at Bethel and wrestled with him, or how he led them out of the wilderness at Gilgal, uh, or how he delivered Abraham at Beth Sheba. These, these, these pivotal moments where God was powerfully at work. Uh, and they, they look back to these towns and these places and they think, that was it. That's where, that's the golden hour. That's the golden year. When Israel started to do that, God says, do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. Seek the Lord and live. In other words, through the prophet Amos, God was saying to the Israelites, do not venerate the past without seeking me in the present. Do not enshrine my work in the past and, and, and kind of put it in a museum as if I will not work in that way anymore. You see, enshrining God's past work while remaining cynical about what he could do now and in the future is not just circumspect. It's actually a lack of faith. The great British Reformed Baptist pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, We do our Lord an injustice when we suppose that, that he wrought all his mighty acts and showed himself strong for those in the early time, but doth not perform wonders or lay bare his arm for the saints who are now upon the earth. God's past acts should move us to seek his powerful and personal presence now. See, even though there are spiritual hucksters and even genuine believers who misconstrue Holy Spirit's work as, as divine authorization for, for every decision and every desire that they make, we, we still have to reckon with the New Testament's witness that God wants to be powerfully and personally present among his people. And we still have to reckon with our lack of expectation, our lack of faith that he will be powerfully and personally at work in the life of the church and in the life of his people as individuals. John Newton, the famous hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, he said that once when writing to a friend, he said that, that many who would flatly contradict the Bible's witness that, or I'm sorry, many who would not, many who would not flatly contradict the Bible's witness that, that we have fellowship with, with the Spirit, attempt to evade the, the force of this, that we have fellowship with the Spirit by restraining, restraining this fellowship to some primitive time. He then goes on to say, 
Quote, but who can believe that the very nature and design of Christianity should alter in the course of time? And that communion with God, which was essential uh, to it in the apostles' day, should now be unnecessary. Do you hear what John Newton is saying? He's asking us, in essence, do you, do we, do I need Holy Spirit any less than the first Christians did? And does Holy Spirit, does he want to have fellowship with us in any less way than he did with these first disciples? I mean, even if there were some aspects about that time that were unique, and there certainly are, the dynamic relationship that God wants to have with us and that we can have with him through Holy Spirit and the Spirit's desire to work powerfully and personally in the lives of the people of God, that is not unique. That carries on. It carries on to this very day. I once heard a story of a, of a person who walked into an African-American church for worship one night. Uh, this, this person was not um, from uh, the black church tradition was not an African-American. Uh, and, and so they went in, uh, they went in to, to see what was happening and to worship that, that evening. Something happened in the church, they said, um, that they weren't really privy to, uh, but, but clearly something had happened that was, that was really devastating to the church, and it burdened the pastor you see, in, in the black church tradition, they don't have the same cynicism and, and intellectual hang-ups about the Spirit's current work in their lives as, as we in the white church tradition often do. And so, and so the pastor got up and he looked at his congregation and said, we have sinned and we have grieved Holy Spirit and he is deeply upset with us. And we are not leaving here. We are not leaving here until we repent and do business with the Spirit. We are not leaving here until we resolve this and repair the relationship and make this thing right. Well, the person who was visiting that day said that, that what he saw made an, a lifelong impression upon him. There was wailing and tears, genuine crying out to God for deliverance and saying that they were sorry. It, it, was, it was something that they, they never got over this person. You know, those believers in that church that night and that pastor... I think they knew something. They knew that Jesus had not left them as orphans. And they expected that Jesus would be personally and powerfully at work among them by the Holy Spirit. What about you? What about you? You know, even if we are not completely dismissive of Holy Spirit's work in the world, perhaps... 
perhaps you know what it's like to, to doubt that the Spirit wants to be involved in, in your life or in your family or in, in your community in any kind of personal or powerful way. Maybe you say, I'm sure that that happens, Kyle, but it happens to other people in other churches, but, but obviously the Spirit doesn't want to work like that in my life. Uh, maybe you feel like that one person standing in front of the... Um, in front of the magic eye picture, you know the one I'm talking about where the images come forth, but, but before it just looks like a bunch of dots? And maybe, and maybe you feel like that one person that just can't see the image. It, it doesn't work for you, and you think maybe for other people, but not, not for me. You know, it can be especially hard to believe that God wants to work in our lives in any kind of personal and powerful way when when you just can't sense his presence and it seems like he's silent and not there. The book of Judges records Gideon saying, if the Lord is with us, then then why has all this happened to us? And, And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted for us? You see, Gideon knew what it was like to feel like God did not want to be personally and powerfully at work in in his life or in the life of his community. God felt absent to Gideon. And maybe God feels absent to you. What do you do when God feels absent? Well, I think it is important to say that just because God feels absent doesn't mean that God is absent. It, It was... Holy Spirit that drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. (laughs) He is in the desert, literally and metaphorically. He is being tempted by Satan, and and I'm sure he didn't have that peaceful, easy feeling. Uh, It wasn't that there was no suffering. See, if Jesus' life and death tells us anything, it It's that the the silence of God does not indicate the absence of God. And Holy Spirit is often at work precisely in the silence and suffering, the heartache and the hurdles. And so don't take God's silence to be an indication that the Holy Spirit is not actively and powerfully at work in your life. Our feelings are not what determines God's presence in our life. The Gospel's declaration is, And according to Isaiah, God has made himself so close to us in Christ by the Spirit that that it is as if he tenderly holds us as a mother holds a newborn child. That's how close you are right now to God. You are held by him, and I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that. And your status before God does not change. You are made right in his eye. You have been adopted as his son or his daughter. You are in his family. But our experience of that adoption does change. And our feelings do come and go. And and we can have an experience of the relationship that that we are responsible for because, because Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. And so it's also crucial to reckon with the fact that even though God is present and powerfully at work in silence and in suffering, in times of anxiety and distress, and not just in feelings of peace, we still have a command 
be filled with the Spirit. We still are commanded not to quench the Spirit. And so my question for you is, is how can you be filled with the Spirit? How can I be filled with the Spirit? How can we have a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit, one that produces a Christ-proclaiming, God-exalting, joy-filled life? How can we be filled with the Spirit instead of quenching the Spirit? How can, how can we have a sense that that Holy Spirit is involved in, in our movements and we are sensitive to that and we are... We are leaning on Holy Spirit on a daily basis and relating to Holy Spirit to open our eyes to illuminate how His Bible applies to us directly in the specific aspects of our life at this time in this place. Well, the Bible doesn't leave us to wonder how to answer these questions. Did you know that? I mean, the first thing to do If you want to have a dynamic and personal and powerful relationship with Holy Spirit, is simply to ask. Ask God for it. Luke 11, 13 says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, if even sinful people give good gifts to their children and they know how to do that and they desire to do it, how much more, how much more will will our Heavenly Father give Holy Spirit to us when we ask Him? See, God wants to be personally and powerfully at work in your life, so ask Him. He is not withholding Holy Spirit from you. Ask. That's the first thing. Ask and Ask and believe. Believe the gospel. Now, Paul writes to the Galatians, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Uh, Paul, Paul is reminding the Galatians uh, that that when they received the Spirit, it wasn't because they were in a state of, of doing the Jewish works of Torah. It wasn't because they qualified themselves in that way. It wasn't that they kept a certain lifestyle or had a certain experience or anything like that. No, the way that they received Holy Spirit was by believing the gospel that was preached to them. They heard and they had faith. The way that the Galatians received the Spirit is by hearing the gospel and responding with faith. And that is, that is how you keep on receiving the Spirit. Paul goes on to say, Do you who began by the Spirit think that you're going to carry on by doing some kind of works? Do you think you're going to get the Spirit through some kind of, some kind of works, Jewish works or other types of works, Christian works, pietistic works? Is, is that what's going to... Is that what's going to muster up this experience? No, Paul says. You need, to, you need to believe the good news about Jesus. This is why when Paul wants the church in Ephesus to be filled with all the fullness of God, to have God deeply at work within their lives, he, he prays that the Spirit would enable them to comprehend the love of Christ that's made known in the gospel. See, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, then hear 
and believe this good news. That God loves you. And God loved you. He loved you before the foundation of the world and he set his love on you. In time, he sent his son for you to win a bride. He loved you so much that he sent his dearly, his only begotten, his beloved son. And that son bore in his own body each and every one of your sins, past and present and future. The sins that you can name and the sins that you're scared to name. The sins that you remember and the sins that, that you've forgotten. The sins that the sins that you acknowledge and the sins that you don't even know about. Each and every one of those he took to the tree. He, he took to the tree every wrong that you have done and he took to the tree everything that makes you wrong. Not only your guilt, but also your shame. He bore it all. He suffered in your place. And then he rose again. He rose again to bring you into a new life. He rose again to give you his life. He rose again not to give you just his record of right doing, but he, he rose again to give you his very person, his self, so that you would know that that not only are you, have you, it's not only that you haven't done wrong things, it's that you are not wrong because, because you were in Jesus and you were clothed with Jesus. And he rose again to give you a life that is, that is sent by Holy Spirit. He rose again to, to penetrate and to animate and to dominate, graciously dominate your life by Holy Spirit. He who did not spare his own son for you, how will he not also with the son graciously give you the Holy Spirit? So ask and receive. Amen.